thinking a lot about what I wanted to do for this episode because I have a few conversations on backlog and although they are all amazing and I'm really excited to share them with Thanksgiving being I guess it would have been well I'm recording this on Thanksgiving so today slash you know like four days I guess prior to when this would be released I thought I would talk about a few things that I myself am grateful for and then introduce um, the story that I will play subsequently. Hey guys, really quick before I dive into this episode, I wanted to talk about my amazing sponsor, Sakara, because I think they're really in line with what I was talking about before, about basically being proud of myself and not sliding back into my old eating habits that, um, you know, I fell into in the past uh, but during the pandemic and and maintaining a like healthy relationship with food I think that was like very much due to meal delivery programs like Sakara because they allowed me to know that I was getting food that was like just gonna fuel me and not have like unadded like added sugar but also was like gonna taste good and make me feel good and still have like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. So um, I think Sakara now is like especially good to order because of the holidays where it's like I don't really want to go food shopping for a 10-day period that I'm going to be like, I mean, I'm, I didn't go home for the holidays, but like if I did for th- uh, for Thanksgiving and I needed to go back for Christmas, like I wouldn't want to go to freaking like Trader Joe's and go shopping a billion times. Um, so yeah, instead you can just get you know, your five day meals and be, be ready for like a week and then do it again. Um, but especially now is the best day to order because it's Cyber Monday and I'm so excited to be able to have a code that gives you 20% off your entire order, which is like unheard of. So if you go onto Sakara.com and use the code BF-Zoe2020 at checkout, that's BF like food dash z o e two zero two zero at checkout you'll get 25 percent off um everything so again bf dash zoe 2020 back to the episode anyways i'm really grateful for all of my friends just for being my chosen family and i don't know there's something like, how can you beat, like, or I don't know, that was not what I was trying to say, but more so for context. Um, I lost someone I knew to suicide last week. And um, again, my best friend Holland tangently knew him. And sorry, Holland, for calling you out right now, like twice, but we spent Friday afternoon on FaceTime just crying to each other. And I, Although it was really sad at the time, in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, that's friendship. Like, being able to FaceTime someone and just cry, like, even though you're in the same city, and just being able to sob to each other, like, if that's not love, I don't know what is. And 
I'm so grateful for her. I'm so grateful for my friends from St. Andrews, my college roommates, the people I've met as I've lived in New York and become more ingrained in the mental health community like Liz and Anna and Laura and just like I'm so fucking grateful for all of them and yeah and I just wanted to give them all a shout out because if it weren't for these friendships like I don't know where I'd be and I know that like who you surround yourself by is a big reflection on yourself so that's again a subtle flack for myself because I love my friends um but yeah shifting gears into this very short episode first I'll fully disclaim that I own zero rights to this content and I hopefully will not get sued for repurposing it but I I guess I'll just go back to the beginning so summer of 2016 before I even knew what mental illness was, um, my friend, Francesca Kelly, shout out Kelly, told me about this podcast called The Moth, um, specifically this episode with Brian Finglestein called The Perfect Moments. She said it was the best thing she's ever listened to and that every time she listens to it, she cries. Again, summer 2016, so I was not even 21. I couldn't even legally drink. And I listened to it once and it. I'm going to play it so you'll hear what it's about. But it's pretty dark, pretty sad. And again, for context, this was prior to I had lost anyone to suicide, which makes it kind of eerie. But, you know, whatever. Um, Listen to it whenever I was sad. And, I mean, this, honestly, like, in many ways, I think this podcast story what have you changed my life and saved my life because I think about perfect moments all the time um and then fast forward to last year around this time I had reached out to Brian Finkelstein and asked if he would come my podcast and I I I forget like when I did it was probably in the beginning it's probably around October and then around November December he responded and said sure and I mean what kind of like full circle fucking awesome moment is that but having the person who literally inspired you to start or not even start a podcast who even who introduced you to podcasts agreed to come on your own like that was the first like holy shit full circle moment I've had with sauce in the city um but unfortunately at that time I did not have good audio equipment so the recording itself with brian was absolute shit and although i do still have it on my computer i tried to repurpose it i tried to like edit it trump the volume and all that but it 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 really is you can't hear anything and it sucks because the conversation was amazing and is a moment i'll never forget but i still i mean i've been thinking about how to share this story, share his words with you all for this past year. And I finally decided, you know what? Like if, if there's anything I could pass along, it's his perfect moments moth 
storytelling episode. So again, I'm sorry, the moth, if I'm still in your content, I'm saying right now that this is recorded from the moth, um, probably said it like eight times, but the only thing I can repeat from like our conversation is how Brian's words not only have been something that I go to whenever I'm sad, whenever I need reassurance, whenever I just need a pep talk, but I truly think they saved my life. And um, sorry to go off on like a little sad tangent, but if there's one thing I wish I did is I wish I shared this with um, my friends who have lost to suicide because at times when I'm feeling really down I I re-listened to this episode and it reminds me that there's people and places and beautiful things in life that are so worth living for and I hope that anyone listening to this who's feeling down takes away the same message so um yeah without further ado here's perfect moments So uh, the standard commitment to work at the Humanitarian Suicide Hotline is six months. Most people work six months, and then they leave quickly. Um, Some people volunteer, like a few make it a year. Nobody really goes beyond a year. Uh, I was a volunteer there for four years. Um, It started when I was uh, 22 years old, and I was young, and I believed in things because I was 22. And I thought maybe I could help the world. I wanted to help people because I was young enough to believe I could, uh, or that if I could, that I would want to. Um, I was that age. And so I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist, a psychologist. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. But the problem was I was a 22-year-old freshman at Queens College, um, which if you know Queens, it's not a great college. It's in Flushing, New York. It's not a nice place. And um, my GPA was uh, a 2.0. Uh, 2.0. So... And I was 22, so I was going to have some problems getting into a master's program, which is very competitive for clinical psychology. So I decided I needed some work credit, internship, something to help me out, some leverage. So I decided to volunteer at the Humanitarian Suicide Hotline. So I show up one Saturday, uh, Sunday morning, or Saturday uh, at 8 a.m., and I walk into this church on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And I walk inside, and there's a bunch of people milling about. But I see this guy that's clearly the guy in charge. He's sitting on the desk. He's sort of like an ex-hippie turned a little corporate He's got, like, a flannel shirt tucked into khaki pants. You know what I mean? He's, he's dipping uh, a chamomile tea bag into an NPR cup. I know who this guy is. <laughs> I get it. He's a vegan who drives a BMW. I know it. So uh, clearly he's in charge. He tells us his name is Glenn. He's like, hey, check it out. All right, my name's Glenn. Um, and then he thanks us all for coming and says, hey, even though we're in a church, you know, I just want you to know we're not affiliated with any sort of religion or God. Or, so if you're here for that, let me just say straight out, if you're here for God or any sort of politics or religion, you should leave now. Um, and right then, like some old dude in the back just goes, see ya, and walks out the door. And then he sits down, and even though he's got this, like, corporate Jewish metrosexual hippie thing going on, he's also got a little bit of a Lewis Gossett Jr. drill sergeant thing going on. Because as soon as he starts a training class, people, he's starting to weed people out. People start dropping. Um, 
there was this one guy who uh, was sitting in the back of the class and was drinking a 40 of beer. Uh, the class, I should say, was at 8 a.m. again, just to point that out. So he was gone. There were these two teenage dudes from Queens who every time they talked, they were like, hey, bag, and then they'd high five. They were gone. There was a woman who did a mock phone call with Glenn because in the two-week training class, he did mock phone calls where he pretended to be callers, and Glenn was pretending to be this 70-year-old dude who uh, was HIV positive and had just found out he had AIDS and was very upset. And he was talking to this woman, um, Nancy, and he was, you know, Nancy was doing the phone call, and she goes, well, I just want you to know that's very upsetting. I'm very sorry for you, but you did choose this lifestyle, so <laughs> gone. Um, now, one of the most important things Glenn weeded out, uh, he said, was people who were there because uh, they were either suicide survivors, meaning people whose family members, uh, they've lost somebody because of suicide, or because they themselves, uh, the volunteer, had uh, contemplated or tried to commit suicide. And as Glenn would say, yeah, check it out. You're really not a good fit. Gone. And so they would leave. At the end of uh, two weeks of training, out of 58 people who came to volunteer, there was only four of us left. Because Glenn was really good, but I will tell you right now, I was better. Because what Glenn didn't know about me was that about four years before this, I lived in San Diego, California. And I bet you Glenn never knew that when I lived in San Diego, I was dating this girl, Tracy. And Tracy was addicted to meth, and I was addicted to Tracy. So Tracy would try to do the meth, I would try to do her. Neither one of us would ever be satisfied. That's addiction. So, <laughs> one day... Tracy uh, slept with uh, my best friend, Babyface, a guy who looked like Morrissey. That's probably why she slept with him, because she was into that. She slept with him, and I had it. And I bet you Glenn didn't know that I then jumped in my five-speed puke orange VW Fastback, an awesome car, and I drove up to my dad's house in Del Mar, California. I was living in uh, San Diego. And I went into his garage, and I took his 38, because my father's a retired cop. And I bet you Glenn has no idea that a 38 doesn't have one of those clips that you put in. It's got the thing, and you put the bullets in, and you snap it. And it's really easy, even if you don't know how to use guns. And I grabbed a bottle of uh, tequila out of my father's liquor cabinet, and I got in my car, and I drove to Torrey Pines Beach. And I took the gun and I drank about a half a bottle of tequila. And I bet you Glenn has no idea that a gun like that is really easy because if you pull the hammer back, it's just, it sort of like has a hairpin, like you can just tap it and it's going to go off. And I took the gun and I stuck it in my mouth. And I'll bet you Glenn has no idea how good it feels to stick a loaded gun in your mouth. It feels incredibly good. I'm not, look, I, I'm things, I'm not a hanser. Things aren't going good for me. I'm, I'm just pointing it out. Like if just saying it right now in front, it feels good to, to have control, to say like, I'm going to put a gun in my mouth and I'm going to have some control over something. And I sat there, and I put the gun, and I was trying to contemplate doing it. And then tequila uh, makes me a little dramatic. And uh, I threw up. Uh, I, I, I'm not a good drinker. I want to be, be the guy that drinks a bottle of tequila, but it's not me. I'm not Bukowski. I'm, I'm Dr. Phil. And uh, I threw up all over the gun. And there's, there's nothing that sort of snaps you out of a suicide uh, impulse than throwing up on a gun. I, it's, it's, it really just sort of clears your head. And I took the gun out, and I thought to myself, well, at least I know I'm not the type of person that's going to pull the trigger, which I don't know. How, for me, it's something I had to find out um, that way. And it also snapped me out of the suicide, and I felt really good, and I felt like this moment of clarity, and I, I wiped the throw up off me, and I got out of my car, and I went, I was in Torrey Pines, a uh, beautiful beach, and I, I went into the water. It was late at night, beautiful full moon. And I went in the water, and it was, like, perfect. And I had what, for me, was a perfect life moment. I sat there under the full moon in the water, just feeling really good, the waves sort of washing over, and I realized that's what life is. That's enough for me, because there's these moments of beauty, like moons and oceans, and then there's moments of horror. And then it's good again. And then it's horrible and kicks you in the face. And then it's good again, 
and then it's horrible in a pigsty because that's what life is. But then for a moment, it's good. And for me, that's enough. But I bet you Glenn didn't know any of that because I never told him. So at the end of two weeks of training class, out of a series of uh, 58 people, uh, four of us are left. Now we walk into the training room, and there's a, the, the, the hotline room. Uh, and just to give you an idea what it looks like, there's three desks with phones, there's a couple of plants, um, and there's a couple things uh, that hang on the walls. There's a, a list of phone numbers, there's um, Glenn's home number in case you need him, there's poison control, um, and then there's 911, uh, in case you forget what 911, the number for, shouldn't have to write that down. Um, and then there's a sign that hangs on the wall that says the motto of the hotline, which is shut up and listen. Big block letters, shut up and listen. And that is an amazing expression to me. That is, that is exactly why I stayed there for four years. Because after six months, I got my certificate. I was free to leave. But I ended up staying for four years because of that thing. Because it made me feel good um, to work there for two reasons. One, listening to people's problems on the phone, you start to feel to yourself, you know what? I don't have it so bad. These people have it a lot worse. To me, it's like if you go to the park and you sit on a bench and you look down and you see a squirrel and you say, well, at least I'm not a squirrel. You know what I mean? It's something. <laughs> and two, seeing the sign shut up and listen, it, it's how you do prevent suicides. It's, it, it, it's what you do is by listening to people. We can't, we don't listen to each other. We, we have agendas. It makes sense. We, whether it's somebody you love or relationship or people you don't like or just casual, we, we all have agendas. We're all trying to get something and we like to talk. I, I clearly like to talk a lot about myself. I'm up here. But... The idea of sitting and listening to somebody else talk made me feel good, and it made me feel like I was helping, and that's why I stayed for four years. Now, the way, the, the, the training basically says that what you do is you answer the call, you say, humanitarian suicide hotline, thanks for calling. You then um, listen to somebody, be an active listener. You have to be an active listener. Glenn said not to get scared of silence if there was silence on the phone, because check it out. Silence is a form of communication, right on. He also said that you can't get manipulated by silence. So if it lasts five minutes, you gotta, you got to hang up the phone. Don't get manipulated. At the end of 12 minutes, end the call, because that's about the, the, the allotted time. And before you enter the call, you had to evaluate the person's level of suicide. And the way you do that is you ask a series of four questions. One, um, do you so, feel so bad that you think about suicide? Two, um, do you have a plan for how you would do it? Three, have you set a time for when you're going to do that? And four, have you taken any steps today to kill yourself? Now, in the four years I worked there, 99.9% .9 of all calls are yes, no, no, no. A lot of people think about suicide, but a lot of people don't really go the next step. And what he said is, the only thing that he would offer as a bit of advice was the, the, the biggest, clearest thing, a warning sign, that, the closest thing to a warning sign that you can have for suicide is if somebody says something like, I don't want to die, I just want the pain to stop. And if you hear somebody say that, that they want the pain to stop, that is about... A bell should go off. That's a person who's, who's on the edge. So, four years later, I'm working at the hotline. I come in for the overnight shift. I walk in there. Uh, it's me and my shift partner, a guy named Adam. Adam's a communist. Not relevant at all to the story. It's just a little detail. You're welcome. So, me and Adam are working the overnight shift, and it's busy till about... The overnight shift's 11, uh, to 8, 11 at night to 8 in the morning. You have to do one a year, um, or one a month. And uh, it, it's busy till like 4 a.m., till the bars close in New York, and then it sort of slows down and uh, it gets slow. Um, and around 4 o'clock, uh, 
it was, you know, uh, Adam, it was my turn to answer the phone, and the phone rings, and I pick it up. And uh, I say, hello, humanitarians, can I help you? And this very young, cute, scared voice comes on the phone and says, hi, my name's Amy, I'd like to talk. And I said, what's up, Amy? What's going on? She says, oh, nothing, I was just, you know, calling because I was feeling a little sad. And I was like, oh, what are you, what are you sad about? And she goes, ah, I, I don't know, I, things are pretty good, you know, I have good grades at school, and my parents don't get it, but they, they love me, and, you know, I have a good friend back in Tennessee where I'm from, and, you know, NYU's good, I have good friends here, I have friends who are, she said she had two types of friends, which I thought was really funny, and I use it all the time, is that she had uh, bar friends, and then she had movie friends. I like that expression. I wish I had some movie friends, but so be it. <laughs> and... Right away, I pictured her the way you do when you talk to somebody on the phone. I pictured her in her dorm room, and I pictured, like, a, a quilt, and I pictured her with, like, long hair sitting on her bed and, like, uh, rollerblades and, like, a Dr. Pepper. You know what I mean? I got her figured out. And so I said, well, that sounds good. What's you, but you said you were sad. What do you think about when that happens? She goes, I don't know. She goes, I can't. I don't understand what happens. I can't control it. She goes, sometimes when I have a great day, what I do the next day is I try to duplicate it. I wake up at the same time. I try to eat the same food, try to have the same pattern so that I can control the day so that I don't feel bad. But then, out of nowhere, she said she feels what she described as a hand coming from behind her and sort of pushing her down. And I said, okay, well, what, what's going on when that happens? What are you thinking about? She goes, ah, everything, nothing. I don't know. This feels so stupid. She, you know, she started to feel uncomfortable. And then we sort of started to, I don't know, we started to flirt, a, like not in an inappropriate way, but there was like a, there was a, Look, a lot of the callers I talked to over the years were crazy. This was, she could have been a movie friend if I had met her some other situation. So it wasn't inappropriate, but I was talking to her, and we talked for a little while, and then she said she felt dumb because, because of depression. She felt like, yeah, she felt this sadness, she felt this crippling sadness, but she, she thought that depression was overused as an expression and that there are people who are clinically or socially or chemically or whatever depressed, but she thought maybe she was just, a lot of people are lazy or overuse that word or use it as an excuse, and she was worried she might be like that. And I can identify, I feel the same way, I feel that way. You know, I'm, I, like, I don't think I get depressed. I mean, sure, there's days where I don't get out of bed for four days, but I'm not depressed, right? So... We were talking like that, and then I noticed that it was about, like, time to wrap it up, and I was about to wrap it up, and uh, Amy starts to tell me this. She was telling me this story about going to some place with her family one day, and they went out to get ice cream, and her father bought her ice cream, and it was a great day, and I said, oh, that's great. And I looked at the clock, and I was about to wrap it up, but then I noticed what started to happen was Amy started to slur her speech a little bit, and I said, uh, Amy, what's going on? Are you okay? And she goes, yeah. She goes, um, look, I know it's selfish, and I know it's stupid but uh, I can't do it anymore. I just wanted to stop. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean by it? She goes, I don't know. I just, I can't. I just want you to talk to me. And I was like, well, when you said it, what did you mean? She goes, look, I don't want to die. I just want the pain to stop. And I woke up. And I said, Amy, do you feel so bad that you think about suicide? And she said, yes. And I said, um, do you have a plan for how you would do it? Yes. Um, have you set a time for when you're going to do it? uh-huh, Amy, have you taken any steps today to kill yourself? And she said, yes. And I said, Amy, what have you done? And she told me she took 20 high-strength painkillers. And I said, what kind of painkillers? Because that's what you're supposed to do. And she told me, and I wrote it down. And I threw a pencil at him who was nodding off because he's a communist. And I handed him, <laughs> I handed him the piece of paper so he could poise, call poison control so I could have some information about what would happen so I could pass it on to her. And I said, I just tried to keep Amy talking. I was like trying to ask her about like other things. And, and she was again talking about that day. Her father bought her ice cream and it was very confusing. And then Adam came back with a piece of paper. He had called poison control. And I said, Amy, given the fact that you took 20 high strength painkillers and that you drank and that you haven't thrown up, which she had told me, do you understand that you could pro you're probably, you could die within, within an hour? 
And she started to cry. And I said, Amy, look, um, do you want help? Do you want me to do something? I can do something. I can only help you if you ask. Our policy was not to let, not to intervene unless people wanted it. I said, if you want help, I can do something. She goes, I do. I don't want this. Is, I, no, I don't want to do this. And I said, great. What's your address? She gave me her address. I handed it to Adam. He went to go call 911 because the number was on the board. And I kept Amy talking. And after a while, I just tried to ask her anything. And I was like, uh, Amy, what, 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 what kind of ice cream was it that your father bought? You mentioned that your father bought you ice cream. What kind of ice cream was it? But it was silent. And it was silent for two minutes. And it was silent for five minutes. And I'm supposed to hang up the phone. But who the hell could hang up the phone? So I didn't. And then it was seven minutes. And then around 13, 14 minutes, there was, I heard noises at the door because Adam had called 911. And I heard like people knocking. And then I heard the door crash open. I heard footsteps. And then I heard this voice come on the phone and said, it's okay. We've got her. Click. And then I went home. And I was supposed to go to class that day. I had classes at Queens College, but I didn't go back to Queens College. I never went back to Queens College. I never graduated. I was supposed to go back to the hotline uh, for a debriefing based on that phone call. I called Glenn and told him I quit, that I wasn't coming back. But check it out. Click. And then I did all the things you're not supposed to do in that situation. I obsessed about it, and I stayed up, and I drank, and I smoked, and I drank coffee, and I searched. It wasn't the Internet, but I looked through the papers and listened to the radio. And finally, after three days of it, I uh, found on the Daily News, uh, in the Daily News in New York, page 23, a small paragraph that said um, uh, that they had found the body of a 23-year-old NYU student named Amy Walters um, who died uh, of an accidental overdose. And I know why they call it accidental. I get it. There's insurance reasons, religious reasons, family. They don't want an epidemic to start in a college. I get all that. But what I didn't know was that I was, until that moment, that I was the last person to talk to her. Not her mom in Tennessee or her best friend or some boy at NYU who probably had a crush on her that never talked to her and probably, no, me. And I wanted to call her family and I wanted to try to go down the funeral, but I... I knew it was inappropriate, and so I didn't. And the thing of it is, for me, I have had person, bigger personal tragedies over the years. I think we all have. People do. I, I spoke to her for less than an hour 20 years ago. But she's me in that car. And I think about it every day. If I had pulled that trigger, that would be me. And she never got to find out what I got to find out, which is it's terrible sometimes, but there are these perfect life moments and that's enough.